Hi, I'm Candace Malcolm with the Candace Malcolm Show, and today I want to talk about the Nova Scotia shooting and really is try to unpack some of the questions that remain. So this is what we know so far. The the act of evil, the, the killing, the shooting rampage was carried out by 51-year-old Gabriel Wortman. The killing spree lasted for 13 hours from the evening of Saturday, April 18th to the morning of Sunday, April 19th. Wortman shot and killed at least 22 people. This includes a pregnant woman and a veteran RCMP officer, Heidi Stevenson. He also set fire to at least five buildings and his killing spree spanned across at least 16 crime zones that RCMP police are currently investigating. So there's a lot of questions that remain. It's going to be a long time before we get answers. But to help sort of fill in some of the gaps and answer some questions that I have, I wanted to bring in True North fellow and my friend, Leo Knight. Leo has an extensive career in as a former police officer in investigations and as a security expert. So Leo, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome, Candice. So I think one of the main questions that really stands out at this point, Leo, is the fact that the RCMP on Monday during their press conference refused to answer some pretty basic questions. The main one being whether or not Wartman had a possession and acquisition license. It's, it's a pretty straightforward question and it would be pretty simple for the RCMP to answer. All it would take, I presume, would be looking it up in a, in a database and I imagine the RCMP would have done that as soon as Wartman became a suspect or a person of interest on Saturday night or Sunday morning. So wh why wouldn't they answer this, this straightforward question? What's, what's, what's there to hide? You're, you're entirely correct, Candace, in that uh, uh, an e a simple lookup on the police information uh, computer would, would give that information uh, uh, quite easily. Um, the commissioner of the RC seems to me to be spectacularly uninformed uh, when she went into that press conference, and that surprises me as well. Having said that, uh, the only reason I can think of that they wouldn't give that information up is that if it didn't fit the political narrative. Justin Trudeau has said that he wants to bring in more gun control. Um, and if the weapons that were used on that evening were obtained legally, that just wouldn't fit the narrative. If they were obtained legally, then they would have to try and explain how come they, they, ha they haven't tightened up the acquisition uh, process. And I think they're, they're just politically uncomfortable questions for the Liberals at this point in time. Well, that's a really interesting response, and I think you're definitely right. But one of the things that, again, sticks out or raises even more questions is that the RCMP commissioner is supposed to be independent. They're not partisan. They're not part of the governing party. They're not liberals. And so that's why it was really bizarre because, you know, you're thinking in the greater scheme of the Canadian uh, gun control regime and whether you know, the question of whether these firearms were obtained legally or illegally is incredibly important. Whether this individual was licensed or not is incredibly important. And the unwillingness of the RCMP commissioner to answer the question, we have a clip which I'm going to play right now. And so you can see a reporter asking again the straightforward question, was this guy licensed? And the RCMP commissioner this is the second time she's asked the question. The first time she didn't reply, she didn't provide an answer. Then the second time she's asked, she, it's her being asked directly. She turns to Minister Blair, a partisan liberal appointee by Justin Trudeau, and he jumps in, which again suggests the politicization of this question. If you could release, tell us whether or not that individual did have or did not have a firearm license. 
Tim, as, as, as we've indicated, the RCMP are in the earliest hours and days of this investigation, and it's a complex one. And, and I think it's quite appropriate for them to be careful about the release of information until they've had the opportunity to verify it and confirm it. And, and so it, it is, I, I think, inappropriate. And the Commissioner would, would quite naturally be very reluctant to reveal details of that investigation until it is complete. And so I would urge Canadians to be patient with the RCMP as they do a very difficult but very important job for us in getting all the facts, in, in confirming their evidence making sure that all of the steps to preserve that evidence are, are taken. Um, Canadians need to deserve answers. The families and the victims of these terrible crimes deserve accurate answers. And so let us be patient while the RCMP con conducts their investigation, confirms their evidence, and then I am absolutely confident they'll be transparent and, and, and forthcoming with that once that important work has been done. Okay, so so this this starting to feel like it's being politicized, Leo. Why do you think that is, and 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 why is it that the RCMP commissioner can't feel this simple question? Why the only reason I can come up with, and when the question is asked, and she immediately turns to Minister Blair, it's almost as though she's seeking some sort of permission to answer, uh, which struck me as very odd. She should not be uh, that much under the thumb of the minister for sure. Uh, the second part of that is, why do I think it's been politicized? I think because whatever uh, happened here, whatever the circumstances were that have yet to become public, uh, it doesn't fit the political narrative. Well, you know, you know, regardless of the political narrative that they were trying to put out on Monday, we, we did have, some, we saw some investigative reporting from news outlets across the country. So the Toronto Star reported that Wartman did have priors for assault and for speeding. He also had run-ins with the police over a property dispute with a relative and a sort of bizarre incident, which I, I think everyone should take with a grain of salt because it was reported by Frank Magazine, uh, which is a tabloid known for lying. But it was reported also in the Toronto Star that there was a bizarre incident where he basically tried to lock police officers in, into a parking lot um, that apparently he owned and he, he tried to chain them in and they had to call for backup. That was just in February of this year. So really the, 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 the story that we're starting to see of this individual is someone who has had, a, a, you know, certainly some run-ins, uh, some, some concerning things. Uh, the Toronto Star also reported that because of um, a 2001 assault, which was carried out against a 15-year-old young man, uh, where Gabrielle Wortman was allegedly drunk and assaulted him outside of Wortman's denture clinic in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, which admittedly was over 20 years ago. But still, because of that, he was required not to own, possess, or carry a weapon, ammunition, or explosive substances, and that he was required for assessment and counseling and anger management. So, so, so this does provide a window, Leo, into into who this guy was. And so, you know, I, I guess I just keep coming back to this question. But, you know, it seems like at some point he was prohibited from owning firearms. W would that have influenced his uh, PAL applica application, um, his licensing application? Oh, totally. The other thing that's interesting to note here is that he received a conditional discharge for that conviction. Uh, which typically means that the judge will assign several conditions to his probation uh, period, his release period. And as long as he uh, fulfills those conditions, then he can uh, take his discharge and then there wouldn't be uh, a formal r record of the conviction. Uh, we don't know how long the uh, firearm prohibition was uh, for Wardman. We do know that uh, for sure that the judge ordered the firearm prohibition at that time. 
Now, years later, even if he gets the conditional discharge, that information is still available to police. And I would think would certainly have a bearing on any uh, independent application, even years later, uh, for a PAL. So, so again, you know, perhaps are the RCMP being defensive because his application should have been rejected, but it wasn't? Or, or, or do you think that, again, they're just being tight-lipped because I mean, we've seen it so many times, Leo, you know, after the uh, Danforth shooting that was carried out by someone who seemed to be a radical Islamist, you know, ISIS took responsibility, uh, the police wouldn't even release the name of the suspect, um, you know, they wouldn't comment at all. And it, we saw it again with another shooting that happened in the Maritimes where they refused to release any information. Is this just part of this um, kind of routine act that the RCMP kind of don't, don't trust Canadians and they don't want us to have information? Or do you think that there is something like a cover up, like, you know, this guy's application should have been rejected, but somehow it wasn't, or maybe he never had a license in the first place. And again, they're just playing politics. All of those things are possible. But in my opinion, I think what it really comes down to is the uh, liberal government's uh, gun policy and what they're planning to do uh, and, and how this doesn't fit their narrative. And they're trying to figure out how to message it. That's my best guess. Having said that, and, and just to clarify, the Danforth shooting was the Toronto Police Service, not uh, the RCMP. But the RCMP are notoriously tight-lipped. And I've had um, countless battles with them on their media relations strategy and why they don't just stand up in front of the cameras and Canadians and tell them the truth, what they know. Uh, nobody will ever come back. All you have to do, in fact, if you say something wrong, just say upon further investigation, we've determined that this initial information wasn't accurate and uh, here's the accurate information it's not hard uh, but they're just so reluctant to do that and, and again the force has been politicized there's no question i think commissioner lucky is firmly under the thumb of the minister uh and i wish that weren't the case but i think that is exactly the case yeah this is oh this has become like a big pet peeve of mine and, and yeah you're right it was toronto police services but there, there have been many instances where the rcmp have done the same it's part of a, a, a culture i believe in in canadian policing because you know when, when, when something happens in the united states i mean you you could say maybe they go the the opposite way where, where they release too much information and well, they'll, they'll, really, they'll release things like body cam video the next day or two days after the shooting I yeah mean, it's uh it, it's so much different it's so, it's so transparent, and I really appreciate, it, especially as a journalist trying to you know piece the puzzles together myself, uh, you know piece uh, pieces together. But it really, I mean, I, I think it does come down to the fact that they don't trust Canadians. And I hear from sort of rank and file cops, you know, anonymously sending me Facebook messages or WhatsApp messages complaining about this and saying that they wish that they could speak publicly because there's so much the public doesn't know and deserves to know. I, I want to uh, loop that into another question that I had, Leo, because one of the critiques that's been popping up is about the lack of communication with the public. Uh, over this active shooting situation, like I said, it spanned over 13 hours. So one of the one of the things that sort of popped up is, you know, the the, the police services have this system, uh, the emergency alert system or Amber Alert system, where they can instantly send text messages to everybody in a region. Uh, we get them here in Ontario with some frequency, uh, you know, for missing mi missing people's uh, missing persons. 
uh, reports and that kind of thing. Um, you know, we even got them with coronavirus saying, hey, stay inside. Um, you know, the whole system is designed to protect public health or, or public safety and to prevent deaths. And so the question is, you know, why wasn't that system used in, in this case? You know, why not get as much information out to the public um, as possible? Did you have any idea as to why they weren't using the Amber Alert system to warn people in Nova Scotia? Well, Amber Alert, for one thing, is designed for missing children. So it would go separate from that through the emergency management uh, people. Uh, most provinces have such a system. Uh, in BC, where I live, for example, it's, uh, you know, everyone's been talking for years about earthquake preparedness. So they've got that system in uh, for earthquakes or uh, tsunamis or anything along those lines. Uh, but it can be used for anything that, that's considered urgent that the public needs to know about it. My understanding is that the emergency management folks in Nova Scotia knew what was going on. They even called an extra staff uh, to deal with it, and they can't initiate until they get the police request, and they never received the police request. Interesting, Be because one of the things that uh, stuck out to me was the fact that the RCMP Nova Scotia Twitter account was very active, and they were sending out information to warn the public. They sent this tweet out, which we can put on the screen, um, this, this one went out at 9.20 in the morning on Sunday, and it said, Gabrielle Wortman may be driving what appears to be an RCMP vehicle and may be wearing an RCMP uniform. There's one difference between his car and R RCMP vehicles. The car number, the suspect's car number is 28B11. Behind real, rear passenger window, if you see 28B11, call 911 immediately. Well, well, that seems like a pretty urgent call, but why put it on Twitter? No one's on Twitter. No one's going on Twitter. You know, a small portion of the population is using that. And perhaps if, if they had put that out through a text message, um, one of the victims, for instance, Lillian uh, Hislop, was out walking her dog. Now, perhaps if she'd gotten an, a text message saying, you know, there's a, a, a crazy killer stay in, in your area, stay yeah. inside, and, and she could have avoided some of those uh, really unnecessary casualties. Not, not, not to blame it on the police, because obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, but um, you know, do, do, do you think using Twitter was the best way to get the message out? Or, or again, do you think that they should have acted quicker and used that emergency alert system? Well, they did get the message out per se using Twitter because media picks up on that and then they'll rebroadcast. And certainly the photograph of the suspect was, uh, was readily available on Sunday morning. So they did somewhat get the message out. But you're, you're entirely correct. They didn't use all available tools. Why? Well, I don't know. I can speculate a little bit. I mean, certainly we, we both know, what, Candace, that uh, there's been a couple of actuations of the Amber Alert system in Ontario in the middle of the night, and people have complained about it, saying, why do you need to wake us up? Or, you know, my, my cell phone went off at, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning sort of thing. So maybe the RCMP are a little gun-shy about doing that type of thing. And that would have been uh, the operation or incident commander who made that call. Was that, in fact, what a concern was? I don't know. I'm speculating a little bit. Uh, the other thing I will say is that anytime you've got multiple crime scene incidents uh, like this, uh, especially one where people are, are being shot and killed, the the response is, uh, is very fast moving and is uh, trying to keep, for an incident commander, trying to keep track of everything that's going on and, and you know make the decisions he has to make uh, is, is very, very trying and very stressful, as I'm sure you will imagine. It might have simply been something, a step he overlooked. Or Interesting. she. Actually. Interesting. Well, maybe maybe there'll be more um, 
you know, willing to use that system in the future. If, if uh, you know, hopefully, God willing, there's not an incident like this ever again in Canada. But uh, you know, I think I think that is something that that would be worth looking into. Uh, just to touch on some of the content in that tweet, reports said that Warman was essentially impersonating a police officer, pulling people over. He was wearing uh, what looked like an authentic police uniform and driving a cruiser that I mean, we saw in that picture. It looks exactly like a police cruiser, especially to most people who don't spend a lot of time looking at police cruisers. So I think one of the questions is, you know, this, this, uh, these uniforms in, the, in these police car, obviously, you know, they're not easy to come by. You'd have to sort of, I think, know someone who had had a police uniform in order to get one. So w- what are you hearing? How did how did Wortman obtain these um this uniform in this police car. What I'm hearing uh, is that he was um, an RCMP aficionado, as even a mention of it in his uh, his high school yearbook. Um, I I believe, uh, from what I've been told, that he was a collector of memorabilia, RCMP police shoulder patches, uh, shirts. You can get decommissioned things, uh, and and certainly. Uh, the RCMP has licensed a whole lot of products, sweatshirts and hats and all that sort of stuff. Uh, you could simply walk online by, you know, buy a police ball cap with the RCMP insignia in the front of it. And that would look like a police hat. Um, he, uh, if he's collecting this stuff over the years, that would seem to me to be what that was. He was wearing. Interesting. Again, if he's, if you're a collector, you can go and, and go to any police agency pretty much anywhere and uh, ask them if they've got somebody who, uh, you know, collectors trade patches and all that sort of stuff. Getting RCMP shoulder patches would have been quite easy. And then just getting a, a khaki shirt and putting them on, instant RCMP officer shirt. Interesting. Yeah, I want. I do wonder if there will make these kind of things harder to obtain or try to crack down on them in in the wake of this. Just because, uh, obviously, part of the reason he was able to to, to uh, take so many lives uh, was because people thought that they were dealing with an actual legit police officer and not a deranged um, evil individual on a killing spree. Well, Leo, thank you so much. I feel like we've, uh, you know, you've helped uh, me understand a little bit more about the investigation and what's going on behind it. I hope. I hope that the liberals don't try to politicize this too much and turn this into a gun grab against law-abiding Canadians because, uh, I mean, just a cursory look at the story shows this individual was not someone who was a law-abiding person. He broke uh, just absolute huge number of laws. Um, And so punishing law-abiding gun owners doesn't seem like the right response, and hopefully there's not a a knee-jerk reaction uh you know just final word to you do, do you think there will be or, or do you think that this will pass you're, you're 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 a lot less cynical perhaps than i am candace i think that's exactly what they'll do here uh they're going to bring in some sort of legislation uh and it's going to be the only thing it'll target is our legal gun owners and they're not the ones who are call, uh, committing these these crimes and problems um and especially if in this case he obtained weapons illegally there's not a, a statute you could write anywhere that could prevent that uh, the other part of that, I suppose, is that the uh, it seems that he had several weapons, but one of the weapons we know he did get was Constable Stevenson's sidearm uh, after he killed her. He took her sidearm and two magazines full of ammunition uh, with him, um, and I believe that was the weapon he had in his hand when he engaged police at the Irving uh, gas station uh, in Enfield. Um so, but we don't know more than that in terms of what other weapons he might have had or type of weapons. Um, 
I think, I suspect the weapon he engaged Constable Stevenson with was a long-barreled weapon because even though she was wearing ballistic nylon protection uh, you know, by way of a vest, uh, she was shot in the chest, so it had to go through the, the ballistic nylon, which would suggest a long-barreled weapon. Interesting. I, I know I said last question, but but so a long-barrel gun, w w would that be what um, proponents of gun control would typically describe as an assault weapon, or, or would that just be any, any long-form shotgun? My Louisville slugger in my closet can be an assault weapon. It's It's a ridiculous description used by people who are themselves ridiculous. They know nothing about the subject and uh, they just, they knee jerk all the time. And Justin Trudeau is just such a person. All right, Leo Knight, thank you so much for joining us. Leo is a True North fellow and a former police officer. Leo, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been the Candace Malcolm Show and I am Candace Malcolm.